As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate word, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. We pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Luke, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24. I'm really going to look at the very end of the chapter. So I can almost say turn to John, chapter 1, and turn back a page. Uh, We're just going to be considering the account of the ascension that Luke gives us in his gospel. So Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin our reading at verse 50 and read through verse 53. Four simple but important verses on the ascension of our Lord. So Luke chapter 24, beginning our reading at verse 50, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And he, that is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Luke gives us really the only historical accounts of the ascension of our Lord. Uh, He concludes his gospel with this account, and he begins the book of Acts with this account. Uh, This is sort of the pivotal moment for for Luke in the life of Jesus' ministry. He says this is what the gospel is, what Jesus began to do and to teach. And then the book of Acts is the story of what the Lord continues to do and to teach, not on earth, but in heaven. Um, and so this functions as the turning point, sort of the, the linchpin for what Luke says. It's the end of his gospel. It's the beginning of the story of the book of Acts. And in that way, it becomes very central in his mind to what the Lord Jesus is doing. Um, and it functions in a very important way. And so I'm always thankful that we get to go through the, the Apostles' Creed and to think about all these important doctrines Uh, Because I think the ascension would be the one that would be easy to sort of skip over and miss. Um, To think about the glories of the resurrection, the glories of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. But not to think and meditate enough on what his ascension means for us. Uh, Some people have said it's even kind of interesting in the Heidelberg Catechism to think that we have one question on the resurrection of Christ. And four questions on the ascension. Uh, Now, two of those middle questions are sort of theological questions, uh, dealing with some controversies, some friendly controversies, I hope, that we have with our Lutheran brothers and sisters on how can Jesus be both in heaven, in his humanity, and with us on earth. Um, And so we want to make that clear. That's what those two middle questions are doing, really talking about how Jesus can be in heaven in in his humanity and still with us in his divinity, and how that doesn't separate his two natures. You can see how that gets into a kind of theological discussion, um, which I now, having opened, I'm not going to get into this evening. Uh, But that's what those two middle questions are there to do, to deal with that sort of controversy that would be very alive 
for a German congregation living amongst the Lutherans. Um, but what we want to think about is the first and the last question that we recited this evening from the catechism that asks, why, what do we mean by saying he ascended to heaven and what benefit do we receive by his ascension? We should remember the glories of why our Lord has ascended and the great benefits that they provide to God's people. And so thinking about this event, I always think it's important for us to consider where Jesus ascends, um, how Jesus ascends, and why Jesus ascends. Um, and so that's what I want to think about this evening, answer some of those questions. To think about the where of the ascension, the how of the ascension, and the why. Uh, so where Jesus ascends, how Jesus ascends, and why Jesus ascends. Um, I don't know how many of us, if we hadn't just read it, um, could pass a test on where Jesus ascended. If I said, now where did Jesus ascend? You might say, well, it's easy, to heaven. We just, we confess that every week. Next question, please. Um, but where was he when he ascended? Um, what, what would be, if we, if we were writing this story, if we had to put the story together and say, what would be the perfect place from which our Lord would ascend into heaven, that the King of glory would enter into his majesty? Where would, he, where would the place be? I think most of us would probably say, you gave it some thought, uh, Jerusalem, that here we have, he's the king, he's the king, he's ascending from earthly glory to heavenly glory, he's going to be in, enthroned, and you know, what better place to ascend from than from Jerusalem, the, the city of David, um, to ascend from that place where the temple is, where God has made his name to dwell, maybe the temple courts themselves would have been the place for our Lord to ascend, um, just as if we were writing the story, we might not think that the place for him to be born is in Bethlehem. Um, the place where he ascends is in Bethany. He actually leads his disciples out from Jerusalem to ascend at Bethany. Um, and now Luke is a historian. He gives us these details to be accurate. Um, but he's also giving them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a theological purpose. And I think in the scope of the book of Acts, it means for us to ask the question, what is the significance of Bethany? Why there as the where of the ascension? Why that spot? Does that have any significance? And having given you that buildup, I hope you know, of course it has some significance that we want to think about. What would be the significance of Bethany? Well, if we were to read back through the Gospel of Luke... Bethany really only gets mentioned one time. There's only one other place where Bethany really comes up. And it's in the lead up to the, to the story of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, it's while he is going from Bethany and Bethsaida, from Bethphage and Bethany to the mount that's called Olivet that we hear about this place. It's the only mention of it um, in Luke's gospel. And so I think when we only have that one mention, he's meaning for us to take our minds back to that place, to think about the events that happened at Bethany. And by connection with Bethany there in his gospel to the Mount of Olives, to think about that as an important place in the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the place from which he made his triumphal entry. 
where Jesus did something somewhat unique in all of his ministry to openly proclaim himself as king. Uh, to send that message that he was the king, entering as Zachariah said he would. Um, that, might, that is, I think, what Luke wants our minds to go back to, to think about the triumphal entry and to think about Bethany and the Mount of Olives as not just a place where Jesus entered that one time triumphantly into Jerusalem, but that place where Jesus made a habit of entering into Jerusalem. Um, Jesus would often stay on the Mount of Olives and then he would enter Jerusalem to do his teaching. And then when he had done teaching in the city, he would withdraw to the Mount of Olives and stay there. So this is not just the one time where Jesus entered in in majesty from the Mount of Olives, but that was his usual practice when he was teaching to enter into the city from the Mount of Olives where he was staying. It had that significance in his life and ministry. Um, It's also the place where he was arrested. It's also the place where he was taken away, uh, separated from his disciples, and brought into the city to be tried and then brought outside of the city to be convicted. And so I think we're meant to meditate on the importance of this site in the life and the ministry of Jesus, its connection with his triumphal entry, its connection with his teaching ministry, its connection with his separation from his disciples when they were scattered like sheep without a shepherd, and to remake this site in that sense, and to remake this place in their minds um, and associate it with new things, associate it with a second triumphal entry. That's really what Christ's ascension into heaven is. It's a second triumphal entry, where the king enters not triumphantly into the earthly Jerusalem to be the sacrifice for his people, to come and be lauded as the Savior who comes to offer himself for sinners on the cross, who comes to suffer and die. Here is the second triumphal entry where he's going to enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. right? Not as a suffering Savior, but as the Savior who has suffered, who has triumphed, and who has overcome. Who enters into heaven as the one who left heaven to accomplish the salvation of his people and who comes back victorious. Here comes back the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Triumphant, the Lamb who was slain but has conquered. Um, we, get, we get sort of the opposite side of the ascension story in the book of the Revelation when we see the Lord Jesus approaching the throne. Here is the one who has conquered. Who, here is the one who has been victorious. Who returns as a man. Who left heaven to be incarnate by, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and who returns now as a Perfect, resurrected man. The only human being to ever enter into heaven. Think, think of the glory of that moment. And you, know, you say, well, what about other human beings? Didn't they go to heaven? Well, yet they go to heaven in their souls. There are human souls in heaven. 
But there's no human bodies in heaven until the Lord Jesus walks in. He is the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead. The promise of a great harvest that will follow him. But this is the first resurrected man to enter into heaven. Um, G. Campbell Morgan preached a wonderful sermon on the, 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 the ascension of Jesus. And he said sort of memorably, you know, he, he's the only human being to walk into heaven who asked no merit other than his own, who asked no mercy, um, who was there and, and was welcomed into heaven on his own merit, on the basis of what he had accomplished. Um, he had earned his heavenly rest. And here is the first human being to walk into heaven who asked for no merit other than his own, who asked for no mercy. And he said, in the bright and glory of heaven, he cast no shadow there. Because he is himself the glory of God come home. Right? The ascended Savior risen in heaven. If that's not a triumphal entry, I don't know what is. And Luke and John hears in the book of the Revelation some of that worship that greets the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. The Lamb who is slain. Something of the, the, the roar of that crowd as the Lord enters in. And that's what we're given here. Another perspective to think this is a second triumphal entry. This is not the Jesus who was led away from his disciples from this place and taken to be tried and convicted and executed. They're, they're not being separated from him by authorities this time. This is not a cause for sorrowing and for self-recrimination. When the disciples, so many of them, let him be taken away and scattered into the wind like sheep without a shepherd. Um, who, even the best of them, just followed at a distance. Right here, Here's a, a renewing, a remaking of that story. And now when they are separated from him, it won't be with that anxiety or that self-recrimination or that worry about what will become of him. And what is the product of their separation? Right? For so long, Jesus has been saying to them, I'm going away, I'm going away, I'm going away. And they always have been saying, no, 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 no. What will become of us if you go away? And now he does go away. And how do the disciples react? And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Something's radically been changed by this whole ascension. Um, because he ascends in their sight from earth, changing their perspective on this place from which he ascends to heaven. It's important that we think about from where he ascends, as, as Luke gives us that importance, but it's also important to think about where he ascends to. If you'll forgive me, ending with a preposition. I know you're not supposed to do that, boys and girls, um, but I can do that here. It's okay. Um, where, where does he go? Right Again, you say, well, we confess that every week. He ascends into heaven. How do we know that's where he goes? We know because they saw it and they bore witness to it. They bore witness to where he went. And we see that from how he goes. Uh, they, they see that. They witness that. Jesus goes physically and visibly from their sight. And we know where he goes. 
While he blessed them, verse 51 says, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Uh, They testify to where he goes. And that's so important. That they can say, we know where he went. That's important for their comfort. It's important for our comfort. Because if he had simply just disappeared one day, what would God's people always be wondering? Where is he? Where is he exactly? How should we think of our Lord now? Um, Or if he just sort of ascended the way a space shuttle ascends or a rocket ascends where you can see it to a certain point and then it disappears from sight. Right? If we only had the, Luke, the, the, the account of Luke from the book of Acts, we might have think, think of him that way, that he was carried up and then you know, a cloud hid him from their sight. And they just sort of lost sight of him and don't really know where he went. But the whole story, Luke says, you see, is that he ascended, we know, physically and visibly into heaven. They saw where he went. I think that's the reason that fills them with such joy. Um, you know, there, there are several times in Scripture we read things that are so wonderful and so glorious in what they communicate, but they seem so small in the communication. He was carried into heaven. And, you know, it almost cries out for more, more description. You know, go ahead, Luke, take 70 verses to end the chapter. What, what did that look like? What did they see as the Lord of heaven enters into heaven? Um, but Luke tells us enough. The Bible never tells us all the things that we want to know necessarily, but it always tells us what is sufficient for us, what is for our good. And what, what is told to us by Luke is glorious. The Lord was carried physically and visibly into heaven, and the disciples saw it. And it was a reminder to them and to us that heaven is a place for people. Heaven is a place for human beings. Who did they see ascend? The man, Jesus. The man that they had talked to for the past 40 days about the kingdom of heaven. The man they knew in life. The resurrected man they knew after his resurrection. But they knew it was a man who ascended into heaven. The same man they'd had breakfast with. That they'd had meals with. Um, what does that tell us? It tells us that heaven is a place for people. And that's what the disciples saw. They saw the Lord being carried into heaven. And they saw that reality we talk about in our catechism. That we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, will I not come and bring you where I am? Wasn't that his prayer in John 17, that people would see his glory? Um, That's the wonderful thing to know. This truth is for our good. To know that Christ physically and visibly ascended into heaven and that heaven is a place for people, body and soul. And how he ascends is not just physically and visibly, but with a blessing. 
right? As they're looking up to see what becomes of the Lord. Their focus is all up at Him, watching Him go. But where is His focus? His focus is on them in blessing. Right? The, the, the account is very succinct as Luke tells it, but he repeats that twice. Right? He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. Uh, he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and he ascended in the act of blessing them. How, how wonderful to have that be the last sight of the Savior you love. For that to be the last sight of the Savior who is departing from you, who you've depended on so much in life, who you've worried so much about, what will we do without him when he goes? To know that he goes with a blessing and to have that be their memory of him going. To know that while we are looking up and longing for Him, He is looking down in blessing on us. And there's not one of these men who would not go on to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Many of whom would die in the service of their Savior. And how wonderful for them to have that memory to look back on. Of the blessing of their Lord as He left them. And as the great high priest, to think of how he must have blessed them. Right? When, when we pronounce a blessing, it's a wonderful thing for ministers to, to be able to do. It's a wonderful thing. I love being able to, to pronounce God's blessing on you. It's a wonderful privilege to do that for the people of God. But it's not my blessing, right? Um, that wouldn't be worth a whole lot. Just my blessing. Um, but you pronounce blessing in the name of the Lord. That's what the high priests were to do for God's people. But to think of the Lord Jesus blessing the people. He is pronouncing the blessing of God as God himself. That's the assurance he can give his disciples. I bless you and will keep you. I will make my face shine upon you and be gracious to you. I will lift up my countenance upon you and give you peace. Um, That's the blessing that can come to them from their Savior. What a wonderful thing to know that as Jesus goes and as our eyes look up to heaven longing for his returning, that he is looking down on his people in blessing. That's how the Lord goes into glory. And that's why he goes into glory, to be a blessing to his people. Uh, to minister at the right hand of his father. That's what he had tried to persuade his disciples of over and over. It's actually better for you that I go. It's better for you that I go. Because if I go, I can, I can minister for you in heaven at the right hand of my father. That's the best place I can be for you. And when I go, I will not leave you as orphans. I will pour out gifts on you, the the greatest and best of which is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, And he will help you, and he will be with you. It's better than I go. And it's wonderful that they finally seem to get it, that it's better for him to go. Because his departure has a profound effect on the disciples. 
um, the ones who had always worried about his departure. Um, Now the moment of departure has come. How will they react? Um, Have they really learned the messages that Jesus has taught them? Um, Whenever they used to talk of his departure, it was always with a bit of sadness and a bit of fear. Is there any hint of that in Luke's account of his departure? Any sadness? Any fear? No, what, what happens? What is the effect? They worship him as the risen Lord. Something Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Luke should only be done for God. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. They finally get it. They finally understand in a full way who he is and they worship him. They bless his name and they return to Jerusalem with great joy. That's how they're left. Not with sadness, not with fear, but with great joy. They understand the blessing with which they've been blessed. To see these events and to know this Lord has gone to heaven to to minister for them. And in that way, it's a great end to the story that, 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 John, that Luke, be, who are we talking about? Luke uh, began to tell. Get ahead of yourself a little bit. Who's the story? What is the story that we mean to tell? It's the story that Luke began to tell. When the Lord was coming into the world, the announcement of his coming was made with great joy. Right? The angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today is born a Savior. It's fitting that the story begins with great joy and ends with great joy, as Luke tells about the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, as he now goes to minister into heaven. That story begins and ends with great joy. It also begins and ends in the temple. It was Zechariah in the temple praying, uh, who was told about the forerunner who was coming to herald the coming of the messenger of the covenant and the savior of the people. Uh, it begins in the temple and ends in the temple. Um, it, it begins with the worship of shepherds. It ends with those who will go out to shepherd the flock of Christ in the world. It's a wonderful and fitting end. It has a profound effect, the effect it should have on these servants of the Lord. Uh, to understand something of, of the joy. And we want to enter into that joy by making sure that we understand why Jesus ascended. We, we enter into the joy of this story because they came to a profound understanding of why he was going. And we want to make sure that we understand why he's going. That we enter into that joy as well. That's why question 49 of the catechism is so helpful. Um, it's one of those wonderful questions in the catechism that asks, so what? It doesn't ask it that way. Um, but The catechism often pauses and says, now why is this so important? Why is this story so important? Why do we spend so much time thinking about where he ascends and how he ascends so that we can understand why this is so important? Why is it so important? Well, first, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Why does Jesus go to heaven? What is his mission there on our behalf? It's to advocate for us. Um, those were nail-scarred hands that were raised in blessing. It's a reminder of the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus made 
for his people. And he now goes to advocate for the people for whom he died in the presence of his Father. He ever lives to intercede for us. Um, That's why Luke wants to make it very clear. This is the beginning of the story of how Jesus ministers. My gospel is the beginning of the story. But don't think for a second that when Jesus leaves this earth, his ministry is over. It takes on a new and more important, more glorious phase of the ministry. Um, Both are important, both are necessary. But Luke wants to look at them from two perspectives. It's not the story of the Lord who's now gone. Or the Lord who was once active and is now inactive. Um, It's the Lord who's taken up his activity and ministry in a whole new way. Um, In a better way to advocate for us. To pray for us. Intercede for us. uh, To bring our prayers before his Father in heaven. To perfect what we offer the Father. As it comes up before him. Uh, What a blessing to have that Lord in heaven for us. Pleading always the value of his death on our behalf. The salvation that he has won for us. Uh, The justice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Setting sinners free. Pleading always with the love of the Father who sent the Son into the world. If we could just sit in on those prayers for a little while, I think we'd worry a lot less about what we worry about in life. Jesus is praying for us. Praying for us all the time. Right there at the Father's right hand. In His presence in heaven. Um, and that's what assures us that when we call out to our Father, He'll answer us when we, when we call. Because we have an advocate. We have an advocate at the right hand of the Father. Um, He's there in heaven advocating for us. Why else is it important that he's there? As we said, so we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us, his members, up to himself. His ascension into glory assures us that there's a day when we will ascend into glory. Just as he was raised to newness of life to be the first fruits of a resurrection Life to come, a great harvest of all those for whom he died. Uh, So also his ascension in that sense is the first fruits of a great ascension that will happen at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That Paul talks about in other places, like 1 Thessalonians, where he talks about when Jesus Christ comes and we're all caught up together with him. And then we will all be with the Lord. Right? That this ascension speaks of a great corporate ascension of God's people, that as he has ascended to the true heavenly homeland, so all of us will one day ascend to the heavenly homeland in resurrection bodies like his, incorruptible, indestructible, spiritual bodies, glorified bodies with a resurrection like his and an ascension like his to enter into glory um, and to find the home there that we've never been able to find as sojourners and pilgrims here. That's one of the promises, the great promise. And that third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. So that by the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Um, 
He sends the Holy Spirit uh, to continue to be with us and to continue to lift our minds to heavenly things. That's where our focus ought to be. But we know how hard it is to focus on that. We know how difficult the things of this world are and how they are constantly pulling our attention back down. And in our worst moments, we can look around and think, this is all there is. Um, This is all there is. And what does the Holy Spirit constantly do for us by His power? He lifts up our hearts to heaven and says, this is not forever. Uh, This is being renewed. Um, and, and one of the ways he directs our eyes to heaven is directing our eyes to a, res- to a resurrected, ascended Lord. And if we're ever tempted to say, well, you know, the world just goes on and nothing changes. Right? Peter had to deal with that in his day, didn't he? People saying, where's the promise of his coming? As far as I can tell, everything goes on just like it always has. And Peter reminds people, you know, no, there are events in the world that have happened that show life doesn't go on just as it always has. But Peter says there was a flood, remember? Where everything was going on as it always had and suddenly the world was destroyed. Um, and this world is going on just like this and suddenly there will be another destruction, not of water but of fire. The world is not just going to go on as it always has. And what the Holy Spirit reminds us is this this present evil age is coming to an end. It's coming to an end soon. And we are preserved from the horrors that are coming in judgment on this world. By the Savior who has ascended into heaven and who will return to save his people. That even though there's a judgment coming, it's not a judgment that God's people need to be afraid of. Because he's already been judged in our place. And he died for our sins, was delivered up for our transgressions. He's been raised for our justification. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father to plead for us until he comes to save us. But that's the good news. And the Spirit lifts our eyes to Jesus and reminds us his promise, his resurrection, his existence is the promise of a new future. A future that's been begun because he rose from the dead. It's, it's, you know, as someone might have said, it's the small stones that are falling before the avalanche comes. That's the resurrection of Jesus proving the rest is coming. There's something new has happened in the world that proves all things are about to be made new. And the Spirit is the one who keeps lifting up our eyes that we might set them on that true future that's coming. Um... So that since we've been raised with Christ, we would seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The call of the Spirit from Colossians 3 is, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Um, We praise the Lord that he's ascended. We praise the Lord that he's been raised from the dead. And on Easter when we say he is risen, we respond he's risen indeed. Uh, May we also reflect on his ascension. Uh, Because he has ascended indeed. Because he has ascended, we can be assured that we will ascend and be with him 
that the one who ascended will come back as he ascended with blessing for his people and make all things new. Might the Spirit continue to lift us up to think about that reality. And might the, might the glory of that day that's coming, that time that's near, sustain us in all our days here below. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful to be able to meditate on the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ who has ascended into heaven for us. Uh, to know that he has ascended fills us with joy for he has entered into the reward that he so erred by his life on earth. And we thank you for his glory, but we know that he ascended not for himself only, but as he did everything in his life for us was not for himself, but for us. We know that even his ascension is for us too. We pray that we would meditate on that reality of where he is and that reality of where we will one day be. And it might fill us with great joy as it filled your disciples with great joy to know that we are blessed because he is in heaven and that from there he will come again to judge the living and the dead and take us to be with him. And when he comes, we will be with him forever. We pray that that day would come quickly, but that you would sustain us with the hope of that day until he comes. And hear us, we pray in his name.